Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42 begins the process of resolving all the plot lines and tension from earlier in the book. Uh, Really all of it. But especially from the life of Jacob and his twelve sons. For instance... As commentator Andrew Steinman puts it, this portion of Genesis resolves the tension in the narrative, in the story, that is built since Jacob first favored Rachel over Leah, and then Rachel's son Joseph over his brothers. But, as I said, it's not just um, things in Jacob's life and his son's life that begin to get worked out now and... and, um, Resolved in a greater way than any of them could have imagined. But it's everything from the beginning of the book. All God's promises to a sinful people. They all, um, at least in a, in a preliminary way, they all begin to unfold in a glorious picture. Jacob, renamed Israel, bears God's covenant promises, of course, that were given to him and to his father and grandfather before him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now those promises, uh, for those promises to prove true, Israel and his sons in Canaan need deliverance. They need a savior from famine, because as we just heard at the end of the last chapter, famine was in all the earth. But in Egypt, there was bread. They need a savior from famine. Little do they know they have a savior awaiting them in Egypt. (laughs) He is their long-lost brother, betrayed and sold into slavery by his own brothers 20 years ago. 20 years ago. He is now, though they sold him into slavery, he is now Pharaoh's chosen ruler over all Egypt. Of course, his name is Joseph. And being warned by God in dreams, Pharaoh had assigned, in the last chapter of Genesis, Pharaoh had had assigned Joseph to oversee famine preparation during seven years of plenty. And now that the famine has come, the nations flock to Joseph, no one else, Joseph, to buy food. Joseph is in the perfect position to save his family from death in this famine. But not only did most of his brothers plot to get rid of him 20 years earlier, it's even more complicated than that, they had also deceived the rest of the family. They led their father and the family to believe that Joseph had been devoured by a wild beast. That he's dead. So now the sons of Israel needed a deliverance, a salvation that only Joseph could provide, but that kind of salvation is going to require reconciliation to their father and to Joseph. And true reconciliation is impossible as long as their hidden guilt is unresolved. No guilt addressed means no reconciliation and no salvation. Of course, Joseph's brothers know nothing of his status in Egypt, so they're oblivious to this agonizing test they're about to enter. They assume Joseph is out of their lives forever, but they'll soon be forced to encounter the one man who can give them food. So again, as we enter this text, chapter 42, I think this is the big idea. Guilt must be faced. 
before reconciliation can happen. Guilt must be faced before reconciliation can happen. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 42. Verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 42. Here we're going to see that facing famine, Jacob sends ten of his sons to buy grain in Egypt. He sends not all of his sons that are left to him, but ten of his eleven remaining sons, Jacob sends to buy grain in Egypt. Verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Very unusual famine, as we've noted before, in that Egypt would have famines sometimes, sometimes severe famines, if the Nile did not flood um, as it normally did. If the Nile River failed them, um, all hell would break loose in Egypt. But Canaan was not watered by the Nile. Canaan was dependent on rain. So this is an unusual famine in which um, apparently the Nile somehow failed in Egypt to do what it normally did, and the rains didn't come in Canaan. There was famine basically everywhere. Very unusual. But everyone knows at this point, if you want bread, if, if you want grain, go to Egypt. They have it stocked up there. <laughs> Jacob says in verse 1 to his sons, uh, you might not understand what he's saying at first glance. He says, why do you look at one another? What he means is, what are you doing? You're dithering instead of taking action. We all know we're in trouble. What are we going to do about it, sons? They get, get kind of the feel that Jacob... Uh, ex- sort of expects them to figure this out on their own, but they haven't. They're just kind of standing around, looking at each other. And he says, look, we all know what we have to do. Let's do it. So the patriarch is again taking some leadership here in the family. <clears throat> As Richard Belcher says, this comment gives a hint that the sons are indecisive, blind to what is obvious, and unwilling to do what's necessary to remedy the situation. There is unwillingness among the sons to band together to help each other out in this common problem that they all face. By the way, if you remember Genesis chapter 38, uh, Judah, even after Joseph was sold into slavery, Judah apparently goes off on his own away from the rest of the family for most of this 20 years. He's um, At this point, it's evident he's again more directly involved with his brothers, with his father. But that's probably a pretty recent development after God had humbled him. Um, But again, you know the history of this family. They're all divided. They're all, they don't trust each other that much. Um, There's all sorts of history. About as much history as a family can have that's not good. And these boys are sons of four different mothers. 
it's a mess. But Jacob uh, successfully unites them now that they might that they that they would die if they don't do something. He successfully unites them to do something together. Go to Egypt. Buy grain. Um, then as we go down there to verse 3, says that 10 of Joseph's brothers, notice it calls them, anticipating what's going to happen, Joseph's brothers. 10 of Joseph's brothers went down, but the 11th was not sent. Jacob had 12 total sons. Joseph, they all thought, was lost to them. But um, the youngest son, Benjamin, Jacob withheld. And Benjamin would have been a grown man at this point, with children even. <laughs> but Jacob um, said, Benjamin, you stay here with me, with the family. I don't want you going down. And it doesn't say exactly what Jacob was afraid of here. Um, perhaps he had a sense that maybe... Since I favor Benjamin, the other brothers might not like him, like they didn't like Joseph. But again, he doesn't know what happened to Joseph, not really. But um, he also remembers, as it becomes evident later in the chapter, that you know years ago, Jacob had sent Joseph on this trip from which he never returned. Jacob thinks a wild beast devoured him. But it's not explicit right here what he fears. But somehow he fears that harm will, will happen to Benjamin if, uh, if he goes on a journey like this. He's afraid. So, the sons of Israel, minus the two sons of Rachel, uh, the sons of Israel go down to Egypt. Among the others who came, it says, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So you get the picture that there, there's quite the stream of people from the other lands coming and going uh, to and from Egypt. I wonder if it struck them, if it struck these ten brothers as they're on the way to Egypt. This is the route we sent Joseph on 20 years ago. wonder what's become of him. But, um, I, I guess I didn't make this explicit, but Again, Benjamin is predictably favored and sheltered because he's the one remaining son of dead Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. But the other sons, they're allowed to go and save the family. Now we come to verses 6 through 17. And in verses 6 through 17, we see that in encountering the brothers who betrayed him, Joseph decides to test them. Encountering the brothers who betrayed him, Joseph decides to test them. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. That word for governor means, uh, it's a strong word. It means a ruler or one who exercises the mastery, the dominion. Uh, it's just emphasizing, stressing Joseph's absolute control of the situation here. Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 
He would have looked very different 20 years later, no longer a 17-year-old, clean-shaven, as they would not have been, but as Egyptians would have been, clean-shaven, probably the eye paint and all the Egyptian garb. Um, and as we find out later, he only he spoke to them through an interpreter as if he didn't know their language. <laughs> but, yeah, they have no clue, even though it's him staring them in the face, maybe from a distance, we don't know. But he recognizes them. But reading on, verse 9, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. It specifically calls out the fact that Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. Here they are, bowing before him, their faces to the ground. And what a shock this must have been to Joseph. Just another day on the job for Pharaoh. And everyone's coming to him, but suddenly there they are. Right in front of him. What's he going to do? If you haven't thought about it very deeply yet, you might say, well, he should just declare himself on the spot. Say, don't you recognize me? (laughs) But start to think about it a little bit and you realize, oh, hmm, how would that go? And remember, the last he knew, these were wicked men whom he couldn't trust. But he remembered his his dreaming that his brother's sheaves of grain bowed before his sheaf. Now they're coming to him for grain, bowing down. He also remembered that dream of the sun, the moon, and eleven stars doing homage to him, indicating that his whole family would do homage to him. And now these dreams are beginning to be fulfilled. Ten of his brothers, the very ones who hated him for these prophetic dreams. They're bowing before him right now, completely at his mercy. So Joseph, and of course, the text only slowly unfolds what's really going on here. And there's intentional tension. You wonder, is Joseph getting his chance for vengeance here? What's going on? Is he going to falsely accuse them so that he can kill them? But as we as we look at, at the whole story as it unfolds, we're going to find out, no, Joseph's not after vengeance, but he is testing them. He is testing them. What kind of men are these now? And he's trying to find out information about the family. Did they kill off Benjamin? 
Uh, is my father still alive? What's the situation? I have no idea. A lot can happen in 20 years. He needs to know some things so he can know how to ultimately respond and how to interact with them. So he accuses them of being spies. And of course, that's like a possible death sentence for them. He says, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. He accused his brothers of conducting espionage in Egypt, searching for Egypt's weak points, looking into its private affairs. That's that idiom, the nakedness of the land. Um, trying to find his vulnerabilities. And so, as, as Joseph is intentionally harsh with them, and shocking, and um, you know they're they're knocked off their guard. Then they try to demonstrate we're not spies. Um, yeah, we're a large group, but see, we're all part of the same family. You don't know the story here. We're all sons of the same man. And he get and as he presses them further, he gets them to say more about their family. And they say they indicate their father's still alive. He's back in Canaan. Uh, there is one brother that. We left back there with our father, the youngest, uh, and one is no more. <laughs> Assuming Joseph's dead or as good as dead to them. Simon says, while this explanation was meant to convince Joseph that they were not lying about coming to Egypt to purchase food, it told Joseph two things. They did not recognize him. And his father and younger brother Benjamin were still alive. So now Joseph wants to test their character while also wanting to see Benjamin again and eventually his father. So Joseph says, all right, and they're in no position to bargain, obviously. They're at his mercy. He says, you're all going to jail. You're going to be confined, but figure out which one of you you're going to send back to bring your youngest brother to prove your story is legitimate. So for three days, there they sit in prison, in jail, in confinement. And apparently, uh, they don't figure out who's going to get to go back home and deliver this news and try to get Benjamin there. They just sit there for three days. Interesting that Joseph's brothers are put in custody, confined in jail, just as Joseph had been. They're getting just a little taste of what they'd put someone else through years ago. Now again, on this note that Joseph uh, is not really after vengeance, this is what Derek Kidner says. At first sight, the rough handling which now dominates the scene to the end of chapter 44 has the look of vengefulness. Nothing could be more natural, but nothing further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose, there was warm affection. He lists scripture references for all this. And after the ordeal, overwhelming kindness. Even the threats were tempered with mercy, and the shocks that were administered took the form of embarrassments rather than blows. A vindictive Joseph could have dismayed his brothers with worthless sackloads or tantalized them at his feast as they had tantalized him. His enigmatic gifts, his mysterious gifts that we'll see in a moment, were a kinder and more searching test. 
Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. End of quote. So basically, we'll see Joseph doing some very peculiar things. He really is just trying to test them, figure out who they are and what they're about now. So we move on to verses 18 to 28. Verses 18 through 28. And now, as the test unfolds, the brothers are haunted by their guilt before God. As the test unfolds, the brothers are haunted by their guilt before God. Verse 18. On the third day, they're still in jail. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Imagine an Egyptian... The the Lord of Egypt saying, I fear God, that's unusual. Verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so, meaning they agreed to it. What else could they do? But Joseph does fear God. He realizes we're in a famine. One guy cannot bring nearly as much food back to their families as nine guys can. I'll let nine of you return, but just one of you remain confined while you go and bring back your youngest brother. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Strangely generous of Joseph. (laughs) Verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So as the test unfolds, the brothers are haunted by their guilt before God. As Joseph tells the new plan three days into this test, the brothers start muttering to each other, talking to each other in their native tongue, which Joseph still understands. They don't know he does. They don't know it's Joseph. But they start saying to each other, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, we know we're guilty. We know we did something evil to our brother, and he begged us, and we didn't listen. Gives you a little more insight into what that day was like when they sold Joseph. And they are just agreed. 
this is awful, but this must be God getting back at us for what we did to Joseph. This, that is why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben pipes up, the firstborn, who had intended, he hadn't been brave enough to tell them, no, don't, don't let him die. But he had come up with this plan to throw Joseph into a pit instead of outright killing him. And Reuben was, uh, in this cowardly way, still trying to get Joseph back to his father eventually, it said. And then when Reuben was gone, the rest of them had sold Joseph into slavery. So Reuben pipes up, as if he's better than all the rest of them. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? It's all your fault. You did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. He, Reuben is, sounds like he's justifying himself in contrast to all the rest. But, you know, he was just as guilty as the others in lying to their father all these years, too. Letting their father believe Joseph was just devoured. He had participated in that. He hadn't spoken up and said, actually, this is what happened. They're all guilty to some degree, to a great degree. And this may be the first time that Joseph hears that Reuben had tried to save him, or had weakly, you know, um, feebly tried to save him. Joseph is hearing all this, and he weeps. He has to leave the room because he can't control himself can't control his emotions <clears throat> not only is he experiencing a stark reminder of, it, of this past trauma but he's hearing it in the voices of those who responsible for it and he hears in their words that their consciences have been eating away at them so as soon as something goes really wrong in their lives uh oh it's joseph it's because of joseph what we did to him And again, he hears that Reuben had not been party to the whole event. Things were more complicated than Joseph knew. And his brothers are right there in front of him. And he, and in one sense, it seems we can say Joseph longs to be reconciled to these brothers. He longs to see his father and his brother Benjamin also. But how? How do you fix this mess? And it's ironic. Joseph's power is virtually unrivaled in the world of his day. No one's more powerful than Joseph, but that alone can't resolve this kind of pain and wreckage. So he just has to find a place to weep, and then he comes back in. Verse 24, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. The firstborn son, Reuben, would have been considered the most important, usually, and so the most valuable to hold hostage. But now Joseph knew that Reuben did not bear the full weight of guilt the other nine brothers did. So he takes the next oldest, Simeon, Leah's second oldest, Jacob's second oldest. This is Simeon, the, the ruthless man who with Levi had, had slaughtered an entire town of men when they were incapacitated. And he'd taken their wives and children captive. And this was Simeon, the oldest one present when Joseph was sold by his brothers. So it's uniquely appropriate that Simeon is bound. Verse 25, um, again, though, he binds Simeon. He, he makes the decision because they won't. He decides who stays behind. But Joseph is also generous to them. 
He loads them up with grain for their households. He gives them provisions for the journey home. He didn't have to do that. And he gave them all back the money they had paid to get the grain. There was generosity there. Um, But the way they see it, when they discover this at the lodging place on the way back, actually at this point they only discover the money in one of their sacks. They say, what is this that God has done to us? They're horrified. Because it feels like a trap. It feels like now they're going to be accused of robbery. Of pretending to pay for the stuff and then taking their own money back. How can they go back to Egypt now? So they might be considered thieves on the run now. And literally, um, as it talks about how they were dismayed, literally their heart went out, is the Hebrew there. <laughs> Very picturesque. Now it's interesting, they don't start accusing each other of thieving. That's interesting. And perhaps, though the returned silver was generous, perhaps this was also a further part of the test that Joseph is administering. Again, Richard Belcher. Joseph places them in a situation where they must choose between acting selfishly for themselves or acting on behalf of their other brothers. They face the dilemma of saving their own skins by abandoning Simeon Or putting their lives in danger by going back to Egypt to rescue Simeon. These tests are meant to reveal the character of the brothers. Yeah, they're afraid now that they'll be labeled as thieves on top of it all. How are they going to respond? Well, the last, we come to the last section of the text here, verses 29 through 38, and Jacob enters into the test. Now it's Jacob's turn to see what he's made of. And as he also enters the test, Jacob is haunted by distrust and dread. By distrust and dread. The brothers have been haunted by their guilt. Now their father is haunted by distrust of them and by dread. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this, I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. That's a shock, but then there's more shock to come. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Benjamin, that is. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, 
You would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So again, especially when they open their, their sacks of grain and there's all their money. Everyone's afraid now. The brothers, probably still because they're afraid God's after them for what they had done years earlier. But now Jacob is also afraid. What's he going to do? Now they're probably going to be called spies and thieves. And he just can't let Benjamin go. He had lost Joseph. Now he believed he'd never see Simeon again. And he, he's accusing his sons, though he doesn't know the story with Joseph. He's accusing them nonetheless. You've bereaved me of my children. This is all your fault, somehow. <clears throat> Joseph's gone. Now Simeon's gone. Now you want to take Benjamin away also. And there's, on this occasion, there's a kind of selfishness that, just very evident here on Jacob's part. It's all about him. All this has come upon me. Everything has happened to me, he says. This is all about me. Woe is me. That's all he cares about right then. Nobody else. He's just going into a pity party, as we call it. As Kidner put it, Jacob is locked in a suicidally defensive posture. He's not going to get in anywhere and saving his household from famine, acting like this. But he doesn't care at the moment. He refuses to do anything that'll help. Just on the defensive. And then Reuben says, look, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back from this trip. Reuben probably wasn't too smart in quite how he worded that. Look, you can lose two grandsons too. If you, uh, <laughs> That's going to encourage dad a lot. <clears throat> but Reuben's trying as the firstborn to step up a little bit. Um, says, if, if you lose two sons, I'll lose two sons, dad. I mean, I'm this serious. We need to go back to Egypt. But Jacob responds to Reuben by ignoring Simeon's plight. He just ignores it. He assumes that Simeon is simply lost to him. And on top of that, Jacob talks as if Rachel's sons are far more important than any of their half-brothers. Do you see how he worded this? He speaks of Joseph as Benjamin's only brother. He says, Benjamin is the only one left. <laughs> wow. Jacob has not dealt with his issues as a dad either has he and he refuses to i like what andrew steinman says here he says fear often leads us to do things we otherwise would not consider doing fears weight upon jacob led him bitterly to accuse his sons of depriving him of simeon and wanting to risk great harm to benjamin he was withdrawing into himself showing scant compassion for the obvious distress shown by his sons. In turn, the brothers were, in a sense, reliving the consequences of their selling Joseph into slavery and deceiving Jacob by faking Joseph's death. Jacob is in a bad place. So are his sons. And then, as Meredith Klein points out, now the scene 
throughout the story is going to alternate back and forth. The brothers are tossed back and forth between Joseph and Jacob. Joseph and Jacob. <laughs> until, they, until things are resolved. The two poles of their self-inflicted dilemma, Klein calls it. Jacob and Joseph. They're driven relentlessly back and forth between the two. And there we are at the end of chapter 42. We're left hanging. Unresolved tensions everywhere. The brother's guilt toward Joseph is unresolved. Joseph is testing them to see if they are now the kind of men with whom he can reconcile. And Jacob's guilt in his dealings with his family is also unresolved. Jacob's undisciplined feelings made him continue his blatant favoritism. Made him blame everything on the sons he distrusts. Made him retreat into despair. He refuses to face up to his family's impending doom. Jacob was the leader of the family, the man with the plan at the beginning of this chapter. But now where is he? Now, when necessary decisions will cost him his misplaced priorities and his undisciplined affections, now Jacob refuses to step up. So understand, God's working on both the brothers and the father. Both the brothers and the father have unresolved guilt. And we're left, as we pause here until next time, we're left at the end of this chapter with all this unresolved tension. But it really points out the, the big thought here, doesn't it? That guilt must be faced before reconciliation can happen. Guilt has to be dealt with. So let's talk about the applications of this text. Number one. Innocence in a new situation cannot cancel guilt. Innocence in a new situation cannot cancel guilt. Let me explain. Joseph's brothers were obviously not conducting espionage. They were falsely accused, right? They were innocent of that. Your servants are honest men. We've never been spies. <laughs> oh, you're honest men, are you? That was the charge of which they were innocent, but it was the occasion for them to remember their true guilt. <clears throat> and even if a pagan tyrant seemed to be harassing them on false grounds, even then, they felt it must be God's justice hunting them down because they knew their true guilt. You see, they were guilty. Not of that specific charge, but of something else they had tried so hard to conceal for 20 years. As they had sent their brother into Egyptian captivity, now they found themselves in an Egyptian prison. And then they had to leave another brother behind in captivity. Again, all that reminds us that innocence in a new situation cannot cancel guilt. There are many things that any one of us can list of which we are not guilty. Look, I've never done this. I've never done that. That does not make us good people. And it does not give us clear consciences just because there's things we can list we haven't done. 
You know, the Jews were tempted to think themselves holy and righteous because they could list any number of vile things that the Gentiles regularly did that they would never do. But the Apostle Paul responds that for one thing, even Gentiles sometimes acted more righteously than Jews. And for another thing, the Jews broke the same commandments Gentiles broke, though perhaps in different ways. Turn to Romans chapter 2 with me. Romans chapter 2. Starting at verse 13 of Romans 2. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they don't have the written law of Moses, that God gave to Moses, when when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Maybe you grew up in a very religious environment. And so perhaps you've never been guilty of using God's name as some profane exclamation. Some thoughtless curse. You've never done that. I think I can honestly say that. I've never done that in my life story. But that doesn't mean that you or I have consistently honored God's name. We've not taken his name in vain, used it emptily. You can dishonor God's name by disregarding him in your daily life, ignoring him, or by announcing you belong to him, I'm a Christian, and then you misrepresent his character and how you live and your actions. Most of us have never bowed down in front of a, a metal or a wooden or stone idol. But we've certainly placed ultimate value on something other than the true God. And you've certainly conformed your idea of God to what's most comfortable for you, to your own mold. You may not have murdered a parent with your own hands, but have you instead had the kind of malice toward them so that you verbally assaulted your parents? Or you slandered them? Or you just coldly ignored them? You wouldn't respond to them at all? Maybe you've not murdered anyone. But you treat people in a way that is driven by malice. 
treating them as if they didn't deserve to exist. Maybe you've indulged a bitter rage at people who've crossed you. Maybe you've not committed physical adultery. But how discontent do you allow yourself to be with your spouse? How willing are you to stoke your lust outside marriage as long as you don't get caught? Maybe you haven't stolen a large sum of money. That doesn't mean you've never taken something that wasn't yours. Maybe you resist confessing yourself a sinner. You don't want to think of yourself as a sinner because you can claim relative innocence in a lot of ways. See, I haven't done this. I haven't done that. You're like the little boy. You're like a little boy who claims innocence because though he hit his sister, he didn't bite her. I could have done worse things, Dad. Or more seriously, you're like the rapist who says that he never hurt anyone because he never murdered anyone. Innocence in a new situation cannot cancel guilt. Second, as we try to apply this, second, a guilty conscience will hunt you down. A guilty conscience will hunt you down. Again, John Currid says, Joseph is setting up circumstances in order that the consciences of his brothers might be pricked. This is so that they might have a sense of remorse regarding what they had done to him. Conscience is a mighty tool. To quote Fuller, he says, it is, it is that the conscience is God's officer and vicegerent in man. Set by him to be, as it were, thy angel, keeper, monitor, remembrancer, king, prophet, examiner, judge, yea, thy lower heaven. If thou slightest it, that is, if you, if you sin against your conscience, if thou slightest it, it will be an adversary, informer, accuser, witness, judge, jailer, tormentor, a worm, rack, dungeon unto thee, yea, thy upper hell. Continuing the quote, Joseph understands that, as Tillotson says, there is no man that is knowingly wicked, but is guilty to himself. And there is no man that carries guilt about him, but he receives a sting into his soul. A guilty conscience will hunt you down. It's not going to be pretty either. Some people violate their consciences even to the point that they temporarily don't hear them as loudly. You know, the, the expression in Scripture, they, they have seared their consciences with a hot iron, so they're not as sensitive. But still, no one entirely loses their conscience. They never lose the work of God's law written on their heart. In a fundamental way, in a very basic way, every sinner senses their own guilt. That's what they're running from. That's what they're trying to cover up. And one day the conscience will condemn sinners louder than ever. And there will be no shutting it up when they stand in front of God before his judgment throne. Remember what, what we read in Romans 2 just a moment ago? Verses 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And then Paul words this in a weird way. He he then connects how the conscience accuses or excuses. He says, he connects that to this, verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. On that day, the conscience will scream at sinners. And there'll be no escaping it. Well, going a step further, third, covering guilt with falsehood further entraps the sinner. Cover-ups don't work in the end. They just make it worse. Covering guilt with falsehood further entraps the sinner. Not only were Joseph's brothers haunted by what they'd done to Joseph, they were haunted by the cover-up, the lies that they'd orchestrated afterward. And those lies kept tripping them up, kept making it harder for them. They had to take Benjamin to Egypt, but their father wouldn't allow them to take him there. Why? Because Joseph had gone on a journey years earlier, and he'd supposedly faced a bloody end on that journey. Even if he was suspicious that there was more to the story, Jacob was afraid that something similar would happen to Benjamin. So how could they tell him that Joseph was not, in fact, torn to pieces? Dad, you have some false assumptions here about our history. How are they going to say that? You've got it all wrong, Dad. We actually sold him into slavery. And then we let you believe he'd been mauled to death. We smeared a goat's blood on that special coat you'd given him. We lied to you for 20 years. They're trapped. What, what can they do? They can't clear this up with their dad. They can't even relieve him of some, some of his fears they'd like to relieve him of because they lied to him. You know, we all have ways of lying to others, or at least to ourselves, trying to make ourselves look better, trying to convince ourselves or others or maybe God that our guilt is not guilt, or at least it's not bad guilt. And then when God's truth comes along, which could free us from our guilt, we fight it. Because it, it threatens the lies we've built up. We feel like our lives would come crashing down if we welcome God's truth. It'll tear down our house of cards. So, better to hide in a refuge of lies. Better to stay in the dark than come into the light. That's how we all are in our own way. John 3, starting with one of the most familiar texts in all the Bible, verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So covering guilt with falsehood just further entraps us. Fourth and last, there is good news. After all that bad news that's just all too true about us. Fourth, the God whose vengeance we dread is much kinder than we imagine. The God whose vengeance we dread is much kinder than we imagine. And that's why we don't come to him, we run from him, because we don't understand his kindness, his goodness. Joseph's brothers dreaded God. They thought he was hunting them down to destroy them. What is this that God has done to us? If only they knew the rest of the story. God was hunting them down, yes. But he was hunting them down for their salvation. So that they could receive free and and genuine forgiveness. And so that their families, they and their families would live and not die in the famine. And so their descendants would be God's special covenant people he would bring again out of Egypt to whom he'd give the promised land of Canaan, through whom he would bring the Savior of the world. That was God's plan. They had some idea of God's justice. That's why they were so scared. But they had yet to understand God's amazing grace. God's kindness and sheer mercy to undeserving wretches. And if you've been paying attention, that's a big theme in Genesis, isn't it? But it's coming to its climax in this story of these guilty brothers. Well, could you be just like these cowering, guilty men, maybe? Are you desperately trying to get by in life, but all the while it feels like your guilt is a wolf snapping at your heels as you run from it? Deep down, are you afraid of God and his justice? Well, you should be afraid of him if you're opposing him. But the fact is, you don't have to oppose him. If you stop running and you turn and you look at God in the face, you'll find he's the savior you never knew you needed. If you agree with God about your guilt, if you plead for mercy, if you abhor your sin, throw yourself at the feet of your maker, you'll find he's been pursuing you with his redeeming love. It's not a sword, you'll see. It's, it's an embrace. <laughs> the Son of God himself has drained the cup of God's vengeance. And if you entrust your soul to him, there's nothing left for you to drink once you face God. But guilt has to be faced before this reconciliation can happen. But the thing sinners don't understand, the thing we forget too, even as Christians, is yes, facing guilt is painful. But if you're coming to God through Jesus Christ, it's not the catastrophe you think it's going to be. God's waiting there with more mercy than you can imagine. Isaiah 55, 6-7. I hope it's familiar to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's a statement of fact. That's a promise. He will abundantly pardon. He'll have compassion on you. He's on your side. And Christian, we sometimes do a similar thing. We let our remaining sins once again blind us to God's kindness in our daily walk. Again, we experience guilt. And again, we want to avoid God about this or that issue. But he's infinitely kinder than we imagine. We're avoiding God because we have a wrong picture of God to some degree. The cross of Jesus has reconciled you to God if you've already come to him. Deal with your guilt. The punishment for that sin is already over. A guilty conscience is harsh, but God, if he's your father, is kind. So face your guilt, and you can have a cleansed conscience that no longer screams at you. And you can have the embrace of God as your father. Run to God, not away from him. Let's pray together. Father, I can talk till I'm blue in the face. But I've been where any sinner in this room has been. In the sense of being unwilling, simply unwilling to really face my guilt. Lord, you have to work here supernaturally or it'll be in vain. People will continue to try to look the other way, not face up to their guilt, not face you. Help us wherever we are to, as necessary, be reminded of our sins that we haven't dealt with. But help us to take them to you and not just cower wondering when God's going to get us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, humble our pride, humble us so that we can actually receive your truth and so that we can believe the truth that you are kind. And you're pursuing us for our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.